So two weeks ago, we studied chapter 10 in Acts. And in that chapter, we saw Peter preach to Cornelius, the Italian Gentile. If you remember that, we saw Peter preach to this Italian general and all that he invited to his house. The amazing thing about the account was they're Gentiles. They're non-Jewish people, and they trust in Jesus and get saved, which before this time, most of the people that trusted in Jesus had some sort of Jewish root, some sort of Jewish connection. So today, what we're going to do is we're going to pick up in chapter 11, and we're going to start off in verses 1 through 4. It says this, Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also received the word of God. So when Peter, excuse me, so when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him. That was the Jewish people. They criticized him, saying, You went to the uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. So now what's happening here is Peter comes on the scene. He faced criticism from the other believers. They were Jewish believers in Jesus. So the apostles and fellow believers, because he associated with the Gentiles. So Peter, what he does next in verses 5 through 14, he explains himself, okay? So I'm just going to recap because this is something that happened in chapter 10 in verses 5 through 14. He just recaps what happened in chapter 10, but basically Peter tells him what we learned in chapter 10. He went up on the roof. He had this vision of this sheet coming down with all these unclean animals in it. God said, kill and eat. Peter argued with God. Eventually, God, God won, okay? And he said, Peter, like, th what I've made, what I've created is not unclean, okay? So then what happens is Peter, he was there, and then these men that um, Cornelius sent came to get Peter and invited him over this Cornelius, the Italian Gentile um, official, over his house to preach the gospel to them. Normally, Peter, being a Jewish man, would not go into his house or not, not associate with these unclean people. But Peter realized this whole vision of the sheet coming down, this, this whole thing was God saying to him, Peter, these people are not unclean as you've learned all your life. The, the message that I have for you is open to all people, Jews and Gentiles. So basically a practical application to note is sometimes people criticize because they don't have all the information. So what was happening here was this, these Jewish people, okay, these apostles that became believers, okay, these Jewish people that became believers in Christ, they jumped to a conclusion that they shouldn't have jumped to, okay? So they criticized because they didn't have all the information. Maybe sometimes that has happened to you. People criticize you because they don't have all the information, okay? Maybe we do that to some people. Maybe we criticize people, but we don't know the path they walked. We don't know what they went through in life. We don't know what's going on in their life. So we jump to a conclusion and we criticize. So point being is this, we shouldn't do that. We should gather all the information, right? We should gather all the information. So let's get back to the account. We get to the point in which Peter, and as he's telling them, and he's giving them all the information, he's, he basically gets to the point where he says, so as I was preaching to all these people that God called me to in Cornelius' house, here's what happened. 
says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord and how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So now Peter is saying, when I was preaching and when I saw this, remember in chapter 10 we saw this, the Holy Spirit fell upon all that believe. The Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, they receive the Holy Spirit. Peter says, now I realize the theological truth that I didn't fully understand when Jesus said it. And that was this, that we as believers will baptize with the Holy Spirit. John baptized with water, but will baptize by the Holy Spirit. So what does that mean? Well, the truth is this, the preaching of the gospel and the responding to it in faith baptizes people with the Holy Spirit. Here's how it works. And you've heard this pretty much every Sunday that you've come here since I've been preaching, right? We are all sinners in need of a savior. Jesus is that savior. He died on the cross to pay the price for our sins. Three days later, he rose from the grave to prove that he's God, to prove that he conquers sin and death. And all who believe will have eternal life. All who believe will not only have eternal life, but we receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and lives and dwells inside of us. So when the gospel is preached and when somebody responds to it, they are baptized with the Holy Spirit. So Peter saying, when I was preaching and that happened, it was like, oh, that's what Jesus was talking about. Remember, he's living out the New Testament, okay? The New Testament is being recorded with the life of Peter and Paul and all these apostles. So basically what's happening here is he's saying to these, to these Jewish people, like, you criticize because you didn't have all the information, okay? I was used by God to do something amazing, and now here's all the information. And in fact, I'm connecting the dots and remembering what Jesus said, and I was standing there scratching my head. What do you mean we're going to be baptizing with the Holy Spirit? That's what Jesus meant. So then he goes on and says this. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us, he's referencing back to Acts 2, the day of Pentecost. He says, if then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us on that day, when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? So now Peter, this well-respected apostle and an authoritative leader, essentially spreading the gospel to build the church, says... I'm not going to stand in the way of the work of God. Who am I to stand in the way of the work of God? I have all the information now, and I realize what God is actually doing. So these words obviously carried some serious weight, and here is how the apostles and the brothers responded. Hmm. Okay. There we go. Okay. When they heard these things, they fell silent. They glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So basically now having all the information, they accepted that the Gentiles can be saved as well. They glorified God because of that. They were happy because of that. 
Notice another theological truth here. Our salvation is a work initiated by God. We respond to it. Okay, Our salvation is a work initiated by God. We respond to it. That's why for you, maybe in your life, to think about how you came to Christ. Maybe it was like a, you know, a rough time and things were going rough. And you maybe came to church or you had that Christian friend or you listened to Christian radio or somebody dropped the daily bread. And you just you kept on getting this same message, this resounding message. You need Jesus. You need Jesus. And you're like, I don't know about this. I don't, you know what I mean? And sometimes you were fighting it, right? And Jesus kept on finding you, right? Kept on tapping you on your shoulder. And some say, oh, it must have been a coincidence. But we realize that it's actually a work that God is initiating, and he's waiting for you to respond. Maybe that's you today. Maybe God is trying to do a work, and he's waiting for you to respond. Maybe you're kind of kicking and screaming, and, and you're not interested. Maybe somebody brought you here, and you're like, why did I come to church? Okay, this guy's going to talk for a real long time. Okay, I won't talk for a real long time. But here's the thing. God is trying to do a work. We need to respond to him. God initiates our salvation. So that's a theological truth. We, God calls us. We respond to his gift. We respond to his love. Now what we're going to do is we're going to move on. Because you remember um, back in chapter 8, Stephen was the first Christian martyr. The believers at that point were scattered because the church was coming under persecution and the church, the believers were scattered. So basically what was happening here is this thing is not working. There we go. Did you do that or I did it? Okay, perfect. <laughs> so basically the believers were scattered. So now we're going to kind of look at what else was going on. We're going to leave Peter for a little bit and we're going to see what else is going on. It says, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyrus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. So Luke's account here shows that the message geographically was spreading. Because of the persecution, because of the killing of Stephen, the message geographically was spreading. This is beyond Judea and beyond Samaria. Remember, the Great Commission is Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and where else? To the ends of the earth, okay? Where we live, basically. So this is what's going on. The message is spreading. This is fulfilling the Great Commission. The gospel also spread culturally because now in these locations, other people were coming to faith. See, notice the Hellenists were Greek-speaking Jews, but they started to preach to non-Jews. So this is all work of God. This is how the gospel is spreading. Okay, this is how the gospel is spreading. So then what happens is this. <laughs> okay, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So now we see this. This is all work of God. Okay, these believers are traveling around. It's a work of God. They have the message of God. When God desires to do a work through you, there is going to be fruit. And in this case, the fruit was that many believed. You know what? When we answer God's call for salvation, that's great because we become Christians, right? 
But when we answer God's call to actually serve him, to get involved in a ministry or something like that, you start to see God use you. And many of you have experienced that. You volunteered for some kind of work in the church, some kind of ministry in the church. And you're like, at first, you're kind of like, ah, should I do this? You know, it takes time. I got to, you know, commit. And, and then you go, and then you do it. And when you leave, you're just like, man, God actually used me. I had an opportunity. I actually enjoyed that. I actually felt purpose in my life because of that. If you've never felt that way before, you should volunteer for something. Because guess what? God will use you. He uses us in many different ways. And there's so many times in my life where I'm like, kind of like, ah, I don't feel like doing this or I don't feel like doing that. And then I do it and then I'm like, duh. God wanted me to do that. I just didn't feel like it. I was lazy or I just had different priorities or whatever it was and decided I'm not going to answer the call. I'm going to do what I feel like doing. So when God desires to do a work through you, there will be fruit. In this case, case, the fruit was many turned to the Lord. So next in verse 22, can you just switch that for me? In verse 22, Oh, so is it a back there issue? Okay. Okay, good. It's not my phone. (laughs) Okay, I'll read verse 22. It says, The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. So here's what I want to do. First, I want to deal with this issue of Antioch. What is Antioch? Where is Antioch? So the population of Antioch was about 500,000 people. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Now, this was an opportunity to get the gospel to the masses. Okay, so you have this large city, 500,000 people, a highly developed area at that time. It was actually nicknamed Antioch the Beautiful. Antioch the Beautiful. It had a long paved road that ran north and south, which was pretty much like a trade route. So it was easy for people to go to and from because, you know, there was this long paved road. Needless to say, this is a great place to reach many people because it's easy to travel and therefore it's easy to preach the gospel. Now think about this for a second. If you decide to start a new church, would you plant it or would you start it in the middle of nowhere? Would you be like, hey, this looks like a good place. There's no people. Let's start a church. Okay, you wouldn't do that. Okay, you would say, let me look for a place that there's many people. Let me look for a place that there's people to reach. So the only reason why you would ever pick a place that there's really nobody around is if you found out it was an upcoming place and you found out real estate was cheap so you can buy some land to build a church. And then when people came, they would actually be people that you can reach out to. It's difficult to reach out to people if they're all spread out, if they're not accessible. So Antioch was a great place for the Christians to really start having an impact on the community. So now we have Barnabas. So we dealt with Antioch. Now we have Barnabas. Again, remember Barnabas? His nickname was Son of Encouragement. Son of Encouragement. The apostles and the brothers sent Barnabas to Antioch because he wanted them to encourage them. So basically in verse 23, I'm going to read to you. It says, when he came, when this is Barnabas, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad 
And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord and steadfast in purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So when Barnabas came, he did two things. Okay, Barnabas did two things. He rejoiced and he encouraged. You know, when we see the work of the Lord occur and God use other people to do that work, that should be our response. We should rejoice and we should encourage. Rejoice or be joyful. Sometimes fellow Christians are not happy for the work that God does in other people's lives, or they're not happy to hear that another church is doing well. When that happens, it's because our focus is off. You and I should celebrate when we hear that other gospel-centered, gospel-preaching churches are doing well. We should celebrate because guess what? It's not about our church. If you listen closely here, you probably noticed this before, we're not branding our church, okay? You never hear me up here, Forget River Baptist Church, Forget River Baptist Church. We're, it's Jesus, okay? We're working for Jesus. We're not branding our church. We're working for Jesus. We should celebrate anytime people are working for Jesus. When the Lord is adding to the number, when the Lord is adding resources so they can do more. Notice it says a great many people were added to what? The Lord, not to a specific church, but to the Lord. So we can rejoice when other churches are being blessed. We can rejoice when another church offers programs that we don't have and resources that we can't offer. Because guess what? We could say, you know what? I know of a good church that has that, that you can take part in that. You might even know people that have used to come to this church, but now go to another church. And when you ask them and say, oh, why do you go to that church? They might even say, Pastor Mike suggested it because they were driving past a good church. I've had this happen a couple of times. Pastor friends of mine that have churches, people driving past their church to come here. And I'm like, what are you doing? You're coming to a different community. Why not stay in your own community? You have a good church there where you can be discipled and you can actually reach out to your community. One of the things I love about our community, right? Lacey is a pretty tight-knit, smaller community. So we know that when we have friends and family members that live in our town, right? Our church is an easy place to invite them to. See, we should rejoice in the work that God is doing through many different ministries and many different churches. Another point I want to make is this. Do you rejoice for others when they are blessed? This is a sign of a true friend, okay? If you have people in your life that rejoice for you when things go well, that's a good friend. Believe it or not, there are people in this world that are not like that, okay? They have the problem not you, okay? They have the problem, not you. When you rejoice in the blessings of other people, it says that you are really happy for them and thankful that the Lord is doing work in their life. If you're not happy for other people, if you're looking on them in jealousy and envy, you got some work to do with the Lord. You got to, so Barnabas, when he came, he was so excited he was so excited about what the Lord was doing in their midst. So 
Here, it says, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them to all remain faithful to the Lord and steadfast in purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So the first thing he did was he rejoiced, like we talked about. The next thing that Barnabas did was he strongly encouraged, he exhorted. He strongly encouraged them to do two things. The first was remain faithful to the Lord. We're basically loyal to Jesus. Remain faithful, loyal to Jesus, loyal to his teaching, loyal in obedience. We need to be Barnabases in the church. We need to strongly encourage one another to follow after Jesus. This is not just a church leader thing, I encourage you. This is a fellow believer thing, right? We need to encourage one another to follow after Jesus, to be steadfast, to actually live the life, live worthy of the calling, as the scriptures say. So we can encourage people by our words, right? Sometimes we encourage them, say, good job, that was good, you should continue doing that. And sometimes you encourage them by saying, "Uh, you might want to rethink that. I don't think that's a good decision. I don't think you should go down that route. And that's hard, right? Have you ever exhorted somebody like that? Depending on where their heart is, is depending on the response you get, right? So we exhort them with our words, and we exhort them with our actions. When we do good, when we follow after the Lord, guess what? It encourages and inspires other people, the people around us, to follow after the Lord. Many of you here are parents. You know that. Your kids kind of will start to act and do the things that you do, especially the things that you're not supposed to be doing, right? They kind of mimic you. Well, in life, we need to remain faithful to the Lord and encourage other people to do that. The second thing he encourages them to do is be steadfast in purpose, or in other words, unwavering in purpose. Well, what was their purpose? Their purpose is the same as ours is today spread the gospel message. And to be steadfast or unwavering in purpose means that no matter what comes our way, we stay on that purpose. So let me ask you a question, or you ask yourself this question. What causes you to waver from spreading the gospel? We talk about this a lot because we're in Acts and the, the gospel spread is on the loose, right? So, but what causes you to waver when you're around friends or family members or coworkers or people? Like, what causes you to waver from actually sharing the gospel? And I'm, I'm not saying be that annoying person that's always bringing it up, you know what I mean? Like, every, every chance you get, you're, you're like, you know, trying to... St- like, you know, really get people to believe what you believe, okay? I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is this. When you're in social situations, are you praying for and looking for opportunities that you can share the love of Jesus? So what causes you to waver from spreading the gospel? Sometimes it's fear, right? You're afraid. I'm afraid of what they say. I'm afraid I might not know the answer. I'm afraid that they might think it's weird. I'm afraid that... I don't know, maybe, maybe this, I'm not sure about this. Maybe it's doubt, okay? You have doubts, like, what if this isn't true? And I'm, I'm telling other people about it. You know, uh, the best thing to do when you have doubts is doubt your own doubts, okay? Doubt your doubts. Actually research them. Look into it. Find out. Figure out. 
Study. The reason why you have doubts is because you're ignorant to what the truth is, right? So you have doubts because you don't know the whole story. You don't have all the information. Maybe it's priorities. Maybe when you wake up, your priority is not, okay, there's going to be unsaved people around me. How can I get the message to them? Maybe your priorities is live to get all this stuff, to enjoy all this stuff, to get more money. And, and, but most of you realize that if that's your priority, guess what? You're going to be halted when something terrible happens in your life, right? You lose somebody, health problem, financial problem, then you're like, man, what was my purpose? If that was my purpose, this is like, what, what's the purpose of me being here? Then you start to realize, oh, my priorities are out of whack. My purpose to, in being here is to be a light to the people around me. Maybe it's laziness. Maybe just you're full on like, I don't feel like it, okay? I don't feel like doing that. Conversation comes up, don't feel like engaging. I'll talk about the weather. I'll get the conversation away from this because I'm lazy, Maybe it's a wrong focus. Maybe your focus is just in the wrong place. Or maybe you're believing false things. Did you realize this? Our culture is not that friendly to the gospel anymore, okay? I don't know if it really ever was, but our culture, you know what I mean? Like, they would look at someone like me or you that say there's only one way to heaven, that say there actually is eternal separation from God in a place called hell. They would look at someone like us and say, no. That's narrow. That's narrow-minded. That's exclusive. That's not inclusive. They would say things like that. So then what happens is we start to believe false things. And do you realize this? Earlier when I said we celebrate with other gospel-centered churches, the reason why I say it that way is because churches are supposed to be a light of the gospel message, what Jesus has done. We can't waver from that. There are many churches that we don't celebrate with because they're not gospel-centered. They're morals-based. They're whatever they're doing. I'm not sure, actually, what they're doing. But they start to believe false things, and they shrink back, and they bow to what the world says rather than what the Bible says. Okay? And, and if you know anything about history, culture shifts all the time. But guess what doesn't? The Word of God, okay? doesn't shift, so we stick with it. So we need to be Barnabases of the church to encourage our fellow believers to keep the gospel front and center. Why? It's the only thing that saves people. That's why. It's the only thing that saves people. Think about that for a second. It's the only way that people can experience eternal life by trusting in Jesus. Isn't that the most important thing? I know I've used illustrations like this before, but if I told you today there was a house that you can go to in our community, if you knocked on the door, you can get $1 million. $1 million for each person that knocked on the door. You couldn't get two. You can't get your friends extra million. Okay, you can only get $1 million. If you go to this and every person that goes to that door can get $1 million, what type of person would I be if I didn't tell you about that house? Don't say it out loud because it's probably not appropriate for church. But here's the thing. I would not be a very nice person. I have more than a million dollars. I have the words of eternal life provided to us from God's word. So of course I'm going to speak that to other people. Aren't you? So here's what happens. 
So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Remember Saul? We're going to get back to him. He's going to change his name to Paul, and a lot of Acts is going to be about Paul. So now Barnabas heads to Saul's hometown to find him, and some suggest the time gap is about eight years that Saul was actually in Tarsus. And he was preaching around his hometown. He was discouraged by family members and close friends. So when Saul later states, or Paul later states in other scriptures that he was persecuted, a lot of that persecution could have happened during this time gap. And uh, some of the bad things that happened to him could have happened during this time gap. But that's neither here nor there, because basically what Barnabas did is, hey, Saul needs to come to Antioch because Saul is actually the minister to the Gentiles. That was his calling, the minister to the non-Jewish people. So then he goes on, it says, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year. They met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So Barnabas wants to share the joy in the ministry with Saul. He brings him back to Antioch. This is significant because Saul and, and Saul or Paul was called to preach to the Gentiles, and that's what they were doing in Antioch. But here the disciples were first called Christians. Now this is interesting because Luke doesn't really expound upon this. He just says this line. This is where they were first called Christians. Why were they first called Christians? Well, many suggest because their, their conversations... They always had Christ in their mouth. They were always talking about Jesus because they realized their purpose. They realized that life is short. People need to hear about Jesus. Today, we know as Christians, we profess the name of Christ. Well, how do you identify yourself when somebody asks you? Do you say, I'm a Christian? That's how I identify myself. I say, I personally say this, I am a Christian. People will be like, well, you're working at a Baptist church. Aren't you a Baptist? It's like, no, no, no. I'm a Christian, okay? I am a Christian. I'm, I'm Baptistic in my theology, but I am a Christian. But because we live in the culture that we do, sometimes that gives me better opportunities because people say, well, what do you mean by that? Does that mean you're not Jewish? Like, what, what do you mean I am a Christian? So then I have a great opportunity to tell them why I'm a Christian and how they can become Christians. There's a lot of negative connotations towards identifying yourself, right? When you say, I am a born-again Christian, which we are, people say, oh, you're crazy, right? And, uh, but the thing is, we are born-again Christians. I don't choose to use that title because people say, oh, you're crazy, and they don't want to listen to you. So I say, I am a Christian. And then I go into the gospel or go into however that conversation is presenting itself. So now in these last few verses, the Christians have an opportunity to actually show that they are Christians. Not only speak about it, but show it. It says, Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So now a prophet, which is a person who prophesies as a message from God, a special message from God for a specific group of people. Now we have to ask this question. Does this happen today? I would suggest not like this. Remember, this is a special apostolic time where they did not have the word of God. Today, someone can have a message from God for a specific group of people, but it has to be based in God's word. If I got up here and said, I have a message from God, and it was something that was so outlandish, I'd be like, well, God told me this morning. 
Just throw me out of here, okay? Because that is not how this works, okay? How it works is we currently have the closed scripture, okay? So when I come here on Sunday or you have a Bible study leader, yes, we have a message for a specific group of people, but it's based where? In God's word. So if you go to a Bible study or come to church or something like that, and you hear a message, and you might even feel at that time, I feel like that person was talking directly to me. People say that to me all the time in the dark. Pastor Mike, you were talking directly to me. It's like, no, that was the Holy Spirit using God's word to speak directly to you because the Holy Spirit knows what you need. The Holy Spirit knows what you need, and he's using the teacher of God's word, that's why we stick with God's word, to actually communicate to you. Because maybe the Holy Spirit knew you were going to be too lazy to open up the Bible on your own, okay? And hopefully, the more you hear God's word, and the more you realize it applies to your life, you'll actually say, hey, I can actually read this on my own, and learn on a daily basis. So now we have this pending famine and the Christians have this opportunity to, to live out their faith. And here's what happens. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea and they did so sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So the Christians had this opportunity. They had the ability and the resources to help other Christians and other people during this famine. How they did that was through the elders, or in other words, the church leaders. Trusted leaders will get the resources in the hands of the people. This is a model that we practiced for the last 2,000 plus years, right? The church is a vehicle for us to help the community, bless the community. So we do this in multiple ways, right? It's not only food and finance type stuff, but it's ministry type stuff. Think about this. Our church, we have a youth ministry, children's ministry, all these things. The reason why is because we don't want to lose the next generation. So we have the resources and we put those resources together to do these ministries so that we do not lose the next generation. So important. Many times things happen worldwide. So what do we do? We take a collection and we send it to Samaritan's Purse or other ministries that we know that they're actually helping. So you've entrusted the leadership of the church to take that money in to get it to where it needs to go. We do all these things. Why? Because we're Christians. That's why those early believers did that. This Agabus could have came and said, there's going to be a famine. They could have said, well, good thing we have food. Stinks to be you guys. Okay? They didn't. They said, okay, let's, let's get everything together and help other people so they don't starve. So whether it be an ongoing ministry in the church or a special collection or supporting missionaries, these are practical ways that we live at our faith, which the goal is to spread the gospel, as the scriptures say, to the ends of the earth. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for this day. We're thankful for each person that's here. We're thankful, Lord, for Barnabas and being that encouraging person that continued to encourage the church, to encourage other people, to continue to spread the word. We pray now as believers that we are encouraged to spread the word in word and in deed, 
in ways that we can help other people, to bring them to know who you are. We pray that we wouldn't waver, we wouldn't shrink back, we wouldn't bow to what the culture says is true, but we would look to your word because it is true. And we're thankful for that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.